0: So instead of telling jokes today, I'm going to tell you a little story. So I was reading last night um, about a guy, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's 500 years for the Reformation and Martin Luther, all that. But before Martin Luther, there was a guy called Tyndale. Um, I hope I get this right. Um, and he, he basically got burnt at the stake, all right? He got killed and then burned at the stake. And he translated the Bible, so he got he got burnt at the stake for what I'm preaching about today, um, about faith, righteousness, and faith alone. We got a better ring ringing. Do you want me to hold it closer? So um, it was so they were, the, the Catholic Church, sorry, the church at the time, uh, not the Catholic necessarily, the Catholic Church. Um, were so incensed by his translation, they exhumed his body and burnt him again as punishment. So, um, I'm lucky it's 500 years in the, in the future. So today, I'm, I want to speak about uh, righteousness. You see, the word righteousness is used in the Bible um, in different ways. Now, the dictionary, do you want to put the first slide up there, defines righteousness as morally pure or justified. But I think um, the best definition, in my opinion, as we look at scripture, is a right standing, a right standing in God's eyes. If you are righteous, then God sees you as justified and in right standing with him. But what we see is is that the idea of righteousness changes through Scripture. And that's what I want to begin to show you. So Romans 10 says, 10 verse 3, says, Because they, Israel, disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. So we see that righteousness was something that even Israel misunderstood. So some examples that you may have heard in your Christian journey, you know, is like someone might go around and say, well, your righteousness is like filthy rags. You know, has anyone heard that at all? Okay. Uh, and then in another place, we see Abraham was called righteous because of his faith. And Jesus comes along and says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. So we're getting these mixed messages um, from Scripture. So this is what I'm going to hopefully set straight today and what we're going to look at. But right up front, I'm going to give you the final answer, okay? Jesus. You are. And then then we're going to look at, you know, why this word is used so differently. So put your hands up if you think you're righteous. Okay, good, good. Okay, The answer right up front is you are righteous. You are in right standing with God. Full stop. Anyone who has faith in Jesus is 100% righteous. Right here, right now. If you believe in your heart, 100%. Sermon over, go to lunch. Okay? If you get that, and if you get only that, if you hear that, That's it, you know, 100% righteous. But I'm going to take you on a journey and show you why this is the case and how this is the case. So to show you that, we're going to have to look at some um, what I call weird stories, okay? Uh, The first one is in Genesis 12. I'm not going to read that one because of time. But it's God, you can check it out later. God has made a promise to Abram and Sarai about having a child and things aren't really happening the way you know in the time frame that Sarah expected. So Sarah comes up with this plan to help God, sarcastic quotes, okay? For Abraham and Hagar to have a child and maybe God can use that child to bring about the promise. So this is a pretty weird story and it's it's a pretty distressing story, but it what goes on here? Well, in my book, this is adultery or infidelity. Okay? However, at this time, there is no commandments. There were no Ten Commandments given yet. No instructions about marriage or fidelity. But you know that in the next few chapters in the book, about 600 years along, is that ringing and annoying? There's a bit of ringing, just a little bit. So six, we're 600 years before the Ten Commandments come along, okay? Now, I can't go in my thinking and inject the Ten Commandments backwards into the time of Abraham. Does that make sense? Just stay with me. In saying that, just because the law wasn't in existence, it doesn't mean that it was okay. All right? So I'm not saying that it was okay. Because we see up that it causes problems. Abraham and Sarah had problems. Sarah becomes jealous with Hagar, and Abraham has this distress. He has to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. It's something that Abraham would be quite distressed about. So, keeping that story in mind, Let's look at Hebrews 11.11. I think I've got that on the slide. So by faith, even Sarah herself, when she was barren, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered the one who had promised was faithful. So between these two, this scripture and what we see back with Sarah's story the weird story there's potentially this disconnect but what we see is Sarah ended up trusting in God she she probably went through her trust issues but she came out you know she was trying to help God sarcastic quotes but she ends up trusting in God because God was the one who was faithful you see, God didn't go on and cancel the promise between, with Sarah and Abraham because of this account. So another weird story, Genesis 12:10. So we're going to read this one. Um, the next slide, thanks here. Okay, next one. We'll come back to that. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but they'll let you live. So please say you're my sister. So it will go well for me because of you. And my life will be spared on your account. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Next slide. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her. And Abram required flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So what's going on here? Abram and Sarah conceive a plan. Sarah has extraordinary beauty. So they decide to deceive Pharaoh. And Sarah pretends to be Abram's sister in order that Abraham won't get killed by Pharaoh. So... What happens? Because Abraham and Sarah Sarah lie to Pharaoh, God comes along and says, I've had enough of you sneaky lying. I'm going to break the covenant and start again with someone else. No, that's not what happened. But in my mind, I think that makes logical sense to me, but Abraham was called righteous and he goes off and does something that in my book is not considered righteous. Righteous or morally ethical, yet God calls him righteous. You see what's going on? You see the conundrum here? And then to top it all off, God sends plagues onto Pharaoh. Why doesn't Abraham get the plagues? You see how strange that is in our thinking? It doesn't really make logical sense. You think that a just and righteous God would break the covenant with sneaky Abraham and Sarah and find someone else to make the father of all nations. But no, that's not what happens. But why did Pharaoh get the plagues? Pharaoh was innocent. He didn't know what was going on. So what is going on? God sent the plagues... On Pharaoh, because of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. You see, God had made a promise or a covenant with Abraham. And when Sarah went into Pharaoh's household, the covenant was put in jeopardy. God had no choice but to protect his covenant, his promise, and therefore that's the reason he sent plagues to Pharaoh to protect the covenant. Verse 17 is interesting as well. It says, because of Sarai. You see, this is, I believe that the covenant was not just with Abraham. It was with Sarah as well. And she is the only woman mentioned in the Hebrews chapter on faith. Anyway, that's my opinion, but it's another story. So God was protecting the covenant he made with them. Ishmael was not the promised child. The covenant needed to between Abraham and Sarah for God to fulfill his covenant. You see, when we read sometimes Genesis 1 to Exodus 19, we have to remember that despite us knowing what's coming in the future, what's coming with the law, what's coming in our understanding of the rest of the scripture, Genesis 1 to Exodus 19, there is no law. The Ten Commandments do not exist yet. And we need to understand what the conditions are of that covenant at that time to understand what's going on. Because God is relating to Abraham based on the covenant of that time. And consequently, I can't inject my understanding of righteousness onto the stories of Abraham and Sarah. In that time, the covenant was, if you believed in God... You are righteous, regardless of all the weirdness going on. The law is still 640 years down the road, and I cannot inject the Mosaic law back into the time of Abraham. So God had made this covenant promise, and it was what is called a grant covenant. In other words, God says, Abraham, I will make a promise to you and if I don't fulfill it, as in I as in God, I will become like those cows that you cut in half at the covenant ceremony. That's how serious God was about keeping his covenant. And Abraham, because I waited until you fell asleep before I showed up, you didn't walk through those cows. So there's no conditions on your side, it's all on God's side. That is God's promise to Abraham. So Abraham lived under this covenant promise. And nothing that Abraham did is going to change that grant covenant or the promise that God gives to Abraham. Abraham was righteous because of this one and only thing, his faith in God. You see, go back to that timeline, please, Thea, Just as an example, so... Genesis 1 to Exodus 19, right before the law, is about 80 pages in my book. But it's almost 3,000 years. Okay, I didn't work that out. So it's about 3,000 years from Adam in the beginning to just before they get to Mount Sinai. But it's only 80 pages. And we sometimes think that because the Bible is divided up into Old Testament, New Testament, we automatically say Old Testament is Old Covenant. No, no. There was 3,000 years where there was two other covenants, possibly more, with Noah and with Abraham. The law comes in Exodus, and then we have, you know, from Exodus 20 to the end of Malachi. That much, but it's only half the time. It's about 1,300 years. Actually, I think it's a bit longer than that. 1,582, that's all right. So this is why the understanding of covenant is so important because it shapes your understanding of where you're reading in this book and we can't automatically inject our understanding on what's going on in one covenant into another covenant, okay? Or we completely under- misunderstand what's going on. So it's very helpful to know what kind of covenant you're reading. So, Genesis 15:6, to finish this off, Abraham, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was in right standing with God because of his faith and faith alone. Moving forward. I'm going to jump 640 odd years. Through the creation of the law at Mount Sinai, we fast forward to the end of Deuteronomy. Okay, so... At this time, Moses is recounting the story of Israel, how they got the covenant, uh, the old covenant in this case, how 3,000 were killed in the first day, how the snakes came, the earthquakes, the spies that went into the promised land, the exile in the desert, and he recounts this as he hands the leadership over to Joshua. Now, at this time, they're basically renewing the covenant uh, before they go into the promised land. So we pick up from, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, and we read this. So next, go to the Deuteronomy scripture. That's the one. So this command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. Who will go up to heaven, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it? And it is not across the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea, get it for us and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. But the message is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart so that you may follow it. So Moses is saying there's a list of rules to follow and they're not really that hard. They aren't in heaven, they aren't across the sea, they're actually right in front of you. They're actually within your reach to keep. In fact, they were written on a scroll and they were placed next to, an, next to the ark. So it was like an addendum to the Ten Commandments. So Moses says, these are easy to follow. Now, by the time of Jesus, Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees for making the law difficult. You see, I think what happened here is... Um, I didn't check my facts here. So I think it was after Babylon. They basically went and they they saw that they kept breaking the law, you know, and it wasn't good. So they decided to to make these fences around the law. Um, So even if they broke a fence, they weren't breaking God's law. So one example of that, it's a bit like Australian, you know, workplace health and safety, you know, just build fences or more fences and more fences. So a quick example of that was one of the laws was you couldn't, uh, Cooked goat meat uh, in its mother 's milk um, so the reason original reason why that was given was it was considered like a pagan ritual, uh, whether it came from the Canaanites or through from egypt um, the, so it doesn 't really matter, but there was a fence created around it so that they couldn't well, they couldn 't eat meat and cheese together okay because if you ate some meat you ate some cheese and well, maybe you're boiling them together in your stomach. So this was the, the, the thinking of the fence. And then they said, well, maybe we should have meat and then cheese four hours later sort of thing. So they're not mixed. And then they created another fence who was like, well, you know, if I cook some meat, some goat meat, on this plate and I wash this plate and then I put some cheese on that plate, then potentially there might be a little piece of meat left and I'm mixing... Meat and cheese when I eat them together. So they create another fence and they say, These are plates for goat meat, these are plates for milk and cheese, things like that. So they created this fences, I guess, that Jesus was not, you know, He was he was challenging them about this. But Deuteronomy, Moses says right here, the law was within their reach. So reading on from verse fifteen, See today, I have set before you life and prosperity. Well, that sounds pretty good. So written into the covenant, if they followed the law, it would bring them life and prosperity. Reading on, death and adversity. Well, that's not so good. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in her ways, to walk in his ways, And to keep his commands, statutes and ordinances so that you may live and multiply and the Lord God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So if you follow the law, you will be blessed. That's what it says. Verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen... And you are led astray to bow down to other gods and worship. Then I tell you today, you will certainly perish and you will not live long in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. So this is what changed. This is what the, Lord, the law brought. The old covenant was a covenant of blessings and curses. If they followed the law... Life and prosperity. If they followed foreign gods, cursing and death. The entire nature of the covenant, the old covenant, became conditional. And we see this from the book of Deuteronomy all the way to Malachi. If you follow the law, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. We see this in multiple scriptures. An example is 2 Chronicles 7. If my people, if my people call on my name, I will come and heal their land. We use that a lot, you know, in prayer things. But if you read on verse 19, if you don't, I will come and uproot the people, destroy the land, and this place will be like a desert. I'm paraphrasing. We see this conditional language right throughout the old covenant. If you do good, you will be blessed. If you don't, death and cursing follow. Conditional statements are a sign that you're reading the old covenant. So their pursuit of righteousness under the old covenant was through following the law. Following the old covenant was their way of pursuing righteousness. You see, they were trying to get in a right standing with God. Which, as you remember, that's how I defined righteousness, being seen in a right standing God. But they were doing it by trying to follow the law. And we see that sometimes they succeeded. Kings would be good. The nation would follow God. They'd have life and prosperity. Kings would be bad. The nation went down. This was their pursuit of righteousness. They were under a conditional covenant based on the works of following the law. So they were pursuing righteousness, whereas Abraham received it as a gift. And in Isaiah 64, we get to the righteous deeds of filthy rags part. But the very next verse explains why. Why? No one calls on your name, Lord. No wonder their righteousness became broken because because they were trusting, not in the Lord, not in following his covenant. They were breaking the covenant. Now, let's turn over to Romans and start looking at the new covenant. So Romans 4. What can we say then? that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found. If Abraham was justified by works, if he, if he was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not considered a gift, but is something owned. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him, who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credit to righteousness. All right, now, that's pretty confusing. Um, But let me give you an illustration, just so you can follow it a bit. You see, I'm a father, okay? And as a father, I have a lot of love for my kids. A lot of love, okay? And when my kids do wrong stuff, they suffer their consequences, but I don't kick them out of the family, they don't lose their right standing with me. I call them back. I call them back and say, You're better than that. Come on. You're still part of the family. They are righteous in my eyes because my standard is they're in right standing with me because they're loved. Just like God. They can't do anything that will stop that love. They might do something that will displease me, but they still won't lose that love. Now, on the other hand, the scripture goes and says, um, if Abraham was justified by works, here's something to brag about, but not before God. That's a bit confusing. So on the other hand, my kids do something well. They achieve something well in sport or school and something. And they go on and they brag about it. I'm pleased they achieve that, but it doesn't change how I see them. Okay? Make sense? Good. So that's what the scripture's talking about. It does not add them being good to their right standing with me. My righteousness for them was a gift at birth in their case. If Abraham did something amazing, you know, it doesn't change how God sees him. Because he's already got righteousness. Abraham could brag and brag and brag and God's God's not going to change his view. You're more loved. No. It's like you're already at 100%. God is the perfect father, much more perfect than I and he gives us this gift of righteousness no matter what we do. He certainly wants us to do well but if we muck it up, It doesn't change our status with him. This is the picture of the new covenant. In Christ, we are given this gift of righteousness in a very similar way that Abraham received it. Not conditional like the old covenant was. Now, but Jesus comes along and he says, your faith needs to exceed the Pharisees, be greater than the Pharisees. For unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to the ancients, do not murder, because anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will suffer the same. What? You see, Jesus is coming along presenting the kingdom, and at first glance, he's saying, like, you need to uphold your righteousness. You need to be better than those guys. Okay? You need to try even harder. Because, you know, the law is no longer here, it's up here. You're not even allowed to have an angry thought. Well, my reaction is, well, that's pretty impossible. Jesus is painting the picture that however high you make the law, it's impossible to obtain righteousness unless it's a gift from God. And he goes on in Matthew 6 and says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. You see, the new covenant, when you're seeking the kingdom and his righteousness, through the kingdom, you find the gift of righteousness that Abraham was also freely given. Romans 10.3, slide please, Thea. Next one, that's it. It's thirsty work, this preaching. Because they, Israel, disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. So he's talking here about Israel following the law. They chose, they wanted to follow a list of rules and chose to pursue righteousness through the law. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. So Jesus changes that. He's the end of the law for those pursuing righteousness. There is no more conditional covenant for righteousness. Jesus ended all the conditions. For Moses writes about righteousness... That is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. From faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will go into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you. It's in your mouth. Excuse me. And in your heart. Does that sound familiar? Paul is using the same words we read earlier in Deuteronomy about following the law, the easy law. But he changes it. He changes it. He upgrades it. Instead of following the law, he replaces it with faith. Faith says this it's so easy because it's a free gift from Christ. He upgrades the righteousness and replaces the law with faith in Christ. He also removes some of the conditional language. Could you go that comparison slide, please? You can do do that later, but read Deuteronomy 30 and see the changes he's made to Romans 10. Next, um, I think we're in verse 8. For if these qualities... No, that's to Peter. Go back. have gone too far. Uh, next one. No, that's not it. Yeah, I, I read it from there, not from my notes. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. Uh, this is the mess. there it is, halfway down. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, so, okay, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. Here's, here's the, the summary. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses it with his mouth, resulting in salvation. Jesus is the end of the pursuit of righteousness. Because you believe it in your heart, Jesus is Lord, therefore you are righteous. You are living now in the new covenant, and conditional righteousness does not exist anymore. You are 100%. Righteous. I really hope that helps. I really hope that sinks in. Now, so you've got righteousness. You've got the badge. You've got the badge. What do you do with it? You stick it in the cupboard, you die, you go to heaven, end of story. No. Tell me what you do when you get given a million dollars. Spend it. Share it. All those things. Invest it. How are you going to spend your righteousness? You've been given a million, seems a little low, million dollars of currency or whatever, You know, a million dollars of righteousness in kingdom currency. There you go. It's worth more in the kingdom. How are you going to invest it? How are you going to spend it? You have this righteousness through faith. So what are you going to do with it? Very good. Let's have a look. I'll give you some other ways. 2 Peter 1.10. That's it. Oh, that sort of cuts it short, but that's all right. So those who have, have obtained a faith through the righteousness of God, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that there. We, that's verse 1. But I'll drop down to... His divine power has given us everything required for life, godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory. And goodness, Um, blah, 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 verse 5, I think I started, yeah. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind, short-sighted, and forgotten the cleansing of his past sins. You see, you are 100% righteous, but God still wants you to invest and do good stuff. Take that money, spend it, see the kingdom grow, then add some knowledge to it. Better better work on that self-control and so on. Invest it. You see, Jesus went on and said, you will know my disciples by their love for others. Until you get to that point where you are exuding love for everybody around you And the atmosphere is so overwhelmed with your love, investments need to be made. Spend it. Spend it on other people. Because if these qualities are increasing, it stops you from becoming useless and unfruitful. Ooh, That's pretty harsh. Did you know you as a Christian can become useless and unfruitful? Pretty challenging statement. So you've got a million dollar check of kingdom currency of righteousness. Invest it. Spend it. Get some knowledge. Get some self-control. Get some love. Would you stand with me, please?